This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, February 25th, 2017, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Dick Lee. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Church. Scripture reading for today is from um, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And in this chapter, it's kind of a continuation of where he left off at in uh, chapter 2 when he was talking about how Christians um, are to submit to authorities. And now he's focusing in on um, the role of wives and husbands. Verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of the wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. So we've been going through 1 Peter, who starts his book famously talking about being born again. And those who are saved by Jesus and experience this new birth are called and desire to walk in the newness of this new life. Even if we stumble through it, we desire to walk a certain way, live a certain way. And it's a very different kind of life. And it's a kind of life that impacts every kind of relationship that we have in our lives. And it's a life that we find as you read the Bible slowly, and you should read it slowly, so you understand what is actually being commanded of us and how we are to live, you'll find that this life is very counterintuitive, which means it's, uh, it doesn't, doesn't always feel like what I would think or feel I should live. And it's also very countercultural. It's very different than what the world is putting forward and proposing of how we do life and how we do relationships. But if you spend enough time in the Bible, you'll see that it's not counter-creation. And by that, I mean original creation. It is not in conflict with how God designed things in the beginning. See, God is certainly making us into something new, but I wonder if He's not making us into something new as much as He is restoring something that is very old. You see, in Christ, by His Spirit, through faith, God is working in us and He is conforming us 
into what he designed us to be in the beginning. That beginning got screwed up by this thing called sin. And sin, although there's all kinds of ways to explain and define what sin is, I think one of the best ways to describe it is just spiritual treason. It's spiritual treason against our Creator and His ways. And because we, that being our first parents and also us, because we refuse to obey God, the one in whose image we were created, we have become confused as to actually who we are. And what you see is a world, and it's very obvious to see if you kind of have your Bible lens on, we live in a world where people, male and female, young and old, of all ages and social statuses, are searching for identity. Searching for meaning, searching for hope, searching for significance. In many ways, the search for identity is a search for people to feel worthy or not feel worthless. And what happens is as people endeavor to find when there's many things to find their worth in, they wrongly find it in their achievements, some in their oppression, some in their marital statuses, some in their jobs, their families, their beauty, their wealth, their lineage, their ethnicity, their education, their talents, their gender, or even their sexuality. Searching for identity. I'm significant because I am this. I'm worthy because I am this. Enter Jesus. And when Jesus came into the world, good news of the gospel, the news of what Jesus has done in history to bring us back to God, he proclaimed that our identity wasn't found in any of those things. The gospel confronted Peter's culture in a powerful way. And I would argue it's continuing to confront our culture in really the same way. Because man hasn't changed very much in their search for identity. The gospel tells us in Galatians 3 and other places that when you are in Christ through faith, that there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a statement about identity. And this is good news. This is good news still. Because what this tells us is that our value as a person was not in what I or you or society says that I am because of what I do or don't do. Because what I have or don't have. It tells us that my identity is rooted in who God says, I am in Christ. See, the gospel was like the great leveling, right? And I, and I used to like, the, the great leveling in my mind was I always like to think about like the most beautiful person or the most powerful person and imagine that they get the flu occasionally, they get sick occasionally, or on the toilet like I am occasionally, right? And you're like, okay, we're all the same. You may be powerful, you may be beautiful, but we're the same. The gospel spiritually was the great leveling of all people. And 
maybe the great elevation of many people because it transformed the lives of everyone, especially those who were marginalized by society, those who were clearly on the outside, those who were clearly lower or less than in the eyes of the world. It impacted slaves. It impacted women. It impacted the poor and others. The gospel told us something radically new. See, Christianity became this radically new kind of community. Think about this. It is full of these radically different relationships, totally different than the world. In this church, in this gathering of people, you have slaves and masters, husbands and wives, rich and poor, worshiping together as brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel transformed all relationships. And yet, it's interesting as Peter addresses every one of these kinds of relationships. He addresses the citizens and the government. He addresses the slaves and the masters. He addresses what we see the husbands and the wives. He's addressing all of these kinds of relationships and he cautions them all, don't Use your freedom. Be careful not to use your freedom, your new identities in Christ to sin. Like, we are freed from the fear of sin. But we are not free to sin fearlessly. Apparently, God's good news at this time had been, and I would suggest continues to be, used used as an excuse to actually rebel against God's designs. People were using their new relationship with God to wreck or even end their relationship with their pagan masters. Using the gospel to end their relationships with their unbelieving spouses. And so today Peter addresses the marriage relationship. Calling them to reject what is maybe natural to them, I would say of their flesh, what the world is saying, and embrace the Creator's ways of doing relationship, which is what our call is today. Now, as you read a passage like this, especially for the women or wives among us, it's difficult to navigate some of the offense that maybe naturally comes up by Peter's use of the S word. And it's important as you think about him using this word, Peter, you may imagine that like he's the Pope, right? He's this dude in power. And it's important to remember Peter is not the Pope in this experience at this time he is writing. And what I mean is that he is a marginalized man, an oppressed man speaking to marginalized and oppressed people. Like, he doesn't speak from this earthly position of manpower seeking to control or manipulate. He actually speaks from a place of oppression. He's the guy who's calling his people, if you will, those who are Christians to submit to authorities and governments that will actually execute him a few years later. 
So he's an oppressed man, a marginalized man, writing to oppressed and marginalized people from a position of humility, from a position of a guy who denied Jesus and wants nothing more than to help other people follow Jesus and honor Jesus for his glory and their joy. That said, Peter began speaking about this idea of submission, which seems kind of strange to be one of the key characteristics of the Christian life. But he speaks about submission beginning back in chapter 2, verse 13, when he talked about um, governments and he talked about slaves and masters. And now he begins chapter 3 by using the word likewise. And so by using likewise, he's saying, hey, everything I've already said about submission, I'm going to connect it to what I'm about to say about submission in marriage. And what has he said about submission already? Well, he gave a lot of reasons to submit. Why anyone would submit to unjust governments or difficult taskmasters. He had said, we submit to glorify God. He said, we submit to silence the ignorance of fools talking about God. We submit to please God. We submit to follow the example of the Son of God. We submit to fulfill the calling we have from God. And so you will realize really quickly that submission has very little to do with you or I and everything to do with God. What you see is that submission is not about horizontal relationships. It's primarily about our vertical relationship with God. That our submission is actually confessional. What? What do you mean by that? By confessional, I mean that insofar as you submit in accord with what God calls us to, whether it be governmental authorities or whatever authorities in your life, insofar as you do that, you are speaking truth or lies about God. You're preaching a sermon about God and about Christ's relationship to the church if you're talking about marriage. That's pretty weighty. And so best it's in our best interest to make sure that we're preaching right sermons about Jesus and right sermons about God and truth about God by how we live. We often think that way we're only communicating truth by what we say, but what Peter's in a calls to is like how you live has an equal, if not more powerful amount of impact. So let's get into it. As Paul wrote in Philemon 8, which you're like, really? There's a book called Philemon? Yes, there is. And it's 8 because there's only one chapter. Verse 8. Let me take this verse completely out of context for you for my own use. But it says this, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. He's writing to a slave owner who he has just sent a slave back to. He says, look, I'm not afraid to tell you like it is, but I'm going to appeal to you. And so, ladies, I love you. But I'm not scared to tell you what God's Word says, even when it makes us all a little uncomfortable. I do want to try and be sensitive to a very real reality that it is difficult to feel enthusiastic about a word like submit in our culture and oftentimes in our experience. Admittedly, this word and this concept has been abused by men, many Christian men, for generations. 
I recognize that. But as a result, whenever you bring up this word, it, it, it brings up negative connotations, negative feelings, and negative reaction. And I find that a man can barely whisper the word submission, even if he's reading it in Scripture, and not be dismissed as a chauvinist or demonized as some kind of Neanderthal. Many a pastor has been crucified for preaching strong-headed sermons on the S-word because it was devoid of the compassion of Christ. And so I say, I don't, I don't mind being crucified like Christ as long as I'm speaking the words of Christ in a Christ-like way. So I want to talk gently but frankly about the big bad S-word, namely submission. Usually when we come across a word or idea that we don't like for whatever reason, but we feel obligated to agree with it, like it's in the Bible, like I should probably believe this, I don't like this. A typical reaction is an attempt to redefine it to make the word a little more agreeable. It can't mean this. It must mean this. Let's twist it a little bit to make it a little more pleasant. I would tell you that the word submission means to take a subordinate role specifically in relation to another person. Peter says here, wives be subject to your own husbands. Not men be subject or women be subject to men or wives be subject to all husbands. Wives be subject to your own husbands. This is what it means. A wife is to follow and submit to the leadership of her husband. I know right now there's all kinds of thoughts going into some of your minds as to reasons why it can't mean that or shouldn't mean that or could mean that, but certainly I'm an exception. Just hold on for a second. Put all that stuff on the shelf. Close the cabinet. And then we can open it up later. As we have seen and we will see in this letter and in many other letters, submission is not something that's exclusive to women or wives in marriage. It actually is an attribute that is to characterize all Christians because it characterized Christ. So if you notice in Ephesians 5, which if you read that, it's a very much a passage. It's about marriage. And Paul gives a very similar instruction as Peter does. But before he instructs wives to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5.22, he calls everyone to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus in verse 21. So as we demonstrate grace to one another and meekness towards one another and patience with one another and understanding with one another, that doesn't mean we do not submit to the God-given authorities in our lives. Submission to authority, be it governments or bosses or teachers or parents or spouses, is the way of a Christian. The question is whether or not there is some kind of authority in the marriage relationship. The short answer is yes, in the sense that Peter means here. But has it always been this way? Has there always been an order? Has there always been an authoritative structure, for lack of a better term, in the marriage? Or was this God's plan to have submission or submission a result of the fall? Was it a result of sin? 
Is it something that's bad or something good that has become bad because of sin? Great questions. In order to understand marriage and submission biblically, it's important for us to go back to the garden, right? We have two chapters where everything was right. Genesis 1 and 2. And I won't read those chapters to you. They're short. You should read them. You should listen to the sermons we have online about them. But I'll summarize what we learned from that in terms of, is there an order to things? Is there an authority placed in the creative order? So some things we see just by observation, and Adam was created first. We don't know how long before Eve, but first. But that they were both made in the image of God when they were made. We learn that Adam was given the command seemingly before Eve was created. The command to not eat from the tree of good and evil. We learn that Adam was given a job to tend the garden. We learn that Adam was given authority to name all of creation, including his bride. And we learn that Adam was lonely. That it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so a helper, a woman, was made that was fit for him. And we learn that Adam, when sin came into the world, was held responsible for it. Now, in summary, like there's kind of three big things we learn that are most important. One, men and women were created equal. They are co-equal. They have intrinsic value because they are made in the image of God. One is not better than the other. And the second thing we learn is that men and women were created to be similar, which sounds strange. We talk about a helper being fit for him. There were a lot of other options, namely animals, and none was found to be fit for him. None was really like him. And I think rightly so by several teachers, male and female, in recent days, have emphasized the idea that men and women are actually very similar in many ways, and we have overemphasized, if you will, the differences. That is not to suggest they are different. That's the third thing, that they are different. But they have a ton in common. Much more common than maybe we have given credit to. But as I said, they're also made different. Made equal, made similar, and made different. So what we see, though, in this whole picture is that authority and roles, differences, and even submission and order were not a result of the fall. They were actually part of the creative order of God's divine plan. And before the fall, for how many years, we don't know. The time period between Genesis 2 and 3, there was a time when Adam led and Eve followed in what was a very natural and fruitful and joyful relationship. But what came from the fall from the rebellion against God, among other things, was a man's reluctance to lead and work because it became hard. And we also see that women had a somewhat of a disdain for submission and following man because, well, man was not a good leader. He was failing. Essentially, you see, the consequences of sin brought conflict into this amazing relationship. You see, in the very beginning, we're starting to point fingers at things at one another. 
There was tension between the husband and wife. And for him, leadership and work became hard and her being led became hard. And I think this remains still one of the greatest fights for women against their sinful flesh and against a sinful culture that doesn't help. But it's made especially difficult, but not excusable, but especially difficult because of men's failure to lead with love. So for thousands of years, millions of men, billions of men, have abandoned and abdicated and abused their leadership. That is not arguable. That is a fact. And this kind of abuse has led to, honestly, a few good biblical reasons to end marriage. And unfortunately, many bad unbiblical ones. What I mean is that because this marriage relationship is so difficult, divorce is very rampant and people get divorced for really unbiblical reasons, even when they try to baptize them and make them sound biblical. I've literally had people say, well, he had an affair with his job. Not he had an affair at his job with someone. He had an affair with his job, which is a very spiritual sounding excuse, which is not biblical to deal with the fact that this husband is a real doofus and is not loving this bride as he ought, and therefore more conflict has occurred, and now more sin is probably going to be happening. But without question, no one can argue, it's, it's hard to be a sinful wife called to follow a sinful husband. Did you catch that? you got two sinners that are married together. Good luck with that, right? It's even harder when that husband is an unbelieving pagan. And that's what's happening here. See, what happened when women became Christians in Peter's day and they changed their religion, that was often viewed as a real act of defiance. And this is why Peter is kind of arguing like, hey, don't, don't go too far with this. And he says, submit so that even if some do not obey, speaking about these unbelieving husbands, see, even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It's a very powerful verse. And it tells women to say, look, you are a new creation, a married woman, you are a gospel-centered wife, and you are not to abandon your biblical wifery. I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to use it. You don't abandon your biblical wifery when he abandons or never embraces his biblical role as a husband. She is to fight, to live like Christ for the glory of Christ by the power of Christ. And her faithfulness to Jesus in this regard has an evangelical purpose and power. That's amazing. It has an evangelical, like a gospel power to influence the salvation of he who she's married to. Her pure conduct, Peter says. Namely, I believe her embrace of this submissive role has the power to save. I once told a wife, because I do marriage counseling, 
I remember telling a wife one time, I had a couple come to me. He was not a believer. She was. I said, okay, this is biblical counseling, which means I'm going to open the Bible and talk a lot about Jesus. I said, so you don't love Jesus. Know that my number one goal for you is that you will love Jesus and worship Jesus as Lord and Savior because I don't think you'll ever be able to love her until you do because you're Lord of your own life. As long as you know that, and I'll be talking about the Bible a lot and you're going to have homework in the Bible, I'm good to go. He's like, okay, cool. And I said the same to her. And as the counseling went on for several sessions and several meetings, I actually found myself at one point telling the wife that I believe the greatest hindrance to her husband's salvation was her unchristlike behavior. She actually was hindering that because she was not displaying a picture of Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Now, Peter's words here are powerful. And they echo back to what he already wrote to all Christians about all the authorities we submit to and the power that our behavior has, that, that our living in this life matters. And he said in verse 12 of chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Only those who believe in Jesus glorify God. So he says something about unbelieving Gentiles by our behavior, and the same could be said by wives and the unbelieving husbands. So wives are called to submit. And we struggle with the roles, and I, not just wives, anyone who is called to subject themselves into some kind of authority we submit and struggle with these roles that God has assigned us because we view them as less than. And it's especially easy to view them as less than when we see people who we view as lesser in these greater roles, right? Like, well, I'm better than that. I'm smarter than that. Why should I have this role when I clearly can do that? I'm sure no one's thought that way in here, but I've heard the rumor that that has happened somewhere in the world. This is why Peter calls wives, and I would argue that he calls all Christians to focus internally, um, yes, internally and not externally for their value. Now, it says, do not let your adorning be external. And it says the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold drooling. Like, yeah, dudes, don't do that, right? So, but we'll talk about women in a second. Men, we do the same thing. We adorn our lives with all kinds of external things, be it jobs and positions and wealth and lifestyles. May not be braided hair and clothes, though some of us probably do that too. But it is all kinds of things that we're looking externally to say, I'm worthy, I'm good, or I'm better. Power, prestige, position, prosperity. We do all kinds of things. All Christians and people are guilty of that. But he does speak to wives and says, don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. This passage has been used to speak about modesty, which, sure, that's a 
the valid thing to speak on. But I think it might be, instead of modesty, more appropriate to speak about identity. See, all too often we rebel against God's designs in our pursuit of identity. We rebel against God's roles because we are seeking our identity in wrong things. We have desires. We have even abilities. Heck, maybe we even have opportunities. But we must understand that neither desire, nor ability, nor opportunity gives us the right to reject God's designs and God's roles. But I can do it. Doesn't matter. But I have opportunity to do it. Doesn't matter if God has said, this is the way I want it. That does not mean that we go, fine, I guess I'll assume a lesser than role. It means you have to change how you view the role because God doesn't view it as lesser than. Our value is not in what we do or do not do. Our value is not in a position or even the power to make a particular decision. Our value is in our irrevocable identity as adopted sons and daughters of the king. And that can't be taken away no matter what position we hold or power we have or whatever. Sarah, Abraham's wife, the patriarch Abraham in the Old Testament, particularly Genesis chapter 12, um, through many chapters after that, she's given as an example of a woman who did this, who displayed her beauty through hoping in God and through embracing a role that she was assigned, not fearing because of the one she was not. It says, for this, in verse 5, is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. There's the S word again. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Oh, I don't know if I like that one. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So the story of Abraham and Sarah is an amazingly colorful story. You should read lots of the Old Testament because you'll start to feel really good about yourself because none of them were really awesome people. They were screw-ups who needed the grace of Jesus as much as we do. But because of his obedience to God's call, because of some of his really dumb decisions, Abraham took his family on quite a journey, and it was a journey through uncomfortable situations, ill-advised situations, even dangerous situations. Two times... He trafficked his wife to foreign kings. Telling them, oh, she's my sister. So that he could save his own rear end. Two times. That's important. He made other decisions that were foolish. He was a bit of a knucklehead. But two times he did the same thing. And yet we have no record of Sarah complaining or arguing or refusing to follow his leadership. And she seems to have a little bit of reason to do that. Right? The first time, you want me to what? Okay, well, maybe this will work out. Sure. 
oh, uh, I'm now going to be like betrothed to this king. I'm already married. It gets bad, right? And God saves them. Fast forward a little bit. Hey, hon, I got an idea, right? Imagine, right? If that, if that was just put in your own situation. Do you not remember how well that worked out? Like, no, I am not doing that. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I might end up sleeping with some king. Forget it. Never complained, never argued. God saved, God preserved. No, it says she called him Lord, which is what I do in my own home. <laughs> Lord Ford, that's how it goes. No, it's not. It's, it's stallion. That's what I ever called me. No, it's not. Never. Never. She called him Lord. And what does that mean? Like, she's like, Lord Abraham, Lord. No, she submitted to his lead. She submitted to his lead. Even though, man, she was a smart lady. If you read about Sarah, she was shrewd. She was clever. She certainly had her own mistakes and weaknesses, but... I would argue she may have been cleverer than Abraham. But she didn't allow the fear, which, let's be honest, of he doesn't know what he's doing. Or her fear of this is the wrong decision. This is not going to end well. She didn't allow that fear to govern her obedience to the Lord. She hoped in God. She hoped in God and not in her power to control the situation. And all too often, I think, and this goes for everybody, not just wives, we reject the places that God has put us into because we fear. We fear not being heard. We fear bad decisions. We fear not being in control. But let me suggest, as we think about this horizontal and vertical relationship, horizontal, vertical, even though you fear being heard and not being heard, and you fear bad decisions turning out poorly, and you fear losing control, do we not remember that God always hears? And God always purposes everything for good, and God is always in control even when your husband or whatever authority you're called to submit to is a doofus? We have to believe that. Where's our hope in? Is it in that husband? I should hope not. You certainly can hope for things, but don't hope in him. Hope in God. See, beauty in our heart is more precious to God than beauty in our position or our power. And choosing the harder right is always going to be more precious to Him than the easier wrong. But I will say this, 99.9 times out of 100, any kinds of submission problems, for lack of a better term, are actually leadership problems. Husbands, I think it's important to have a discussion about these kinds of texts because they're there. You can't ignore them forever. 
I think it's important to appeal, as Paul does, for submission, for your leadership. But I would argue and compel you to never, ever, 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 ever demand submission. The only men who have to demand submission are the ones who have not loved their wives well and now have to appeal to law. And I'll tell you that that will not go well. It will not work. You have this headship card. Oh, I'm in charge. Don't forget. I've literally had men and women who I'm counseling where they actually begin the counseling talking about headship. She will not follow my lead. She will not obey. I'm just like, oh, Lord, you are not going to like this counseling session. Because I actually front load most of my counseling with the conviction that 99.9% of the time it's the man's fault. That sounds really like, oh. But if we're talking about this issue, for sure. That headship card is certainly something that may be presented at some point. What do I mean by that? Well, I've been married for 23 years and maybe if put it out one time. And that should never be put out so that you can get your way. You actually put it out, if you will, or you say, I'm going to take the lead on this particular thing in order to relieve the burden of your bride. A decision that is difficult, a decision that you're going to, I'm going to take responsibility for this. I'm going to own this. I'm going to lead that. Let me relieve you of that burden because it's my responsibility. That's a proper use of that moment if it should ever come. The truth is, if couples ever find themselves in conflict over this kind of issue, I would argue that husbands should be asking themselves a lot of questions like, why won't she follow me? Because, and this is true for those who are married now, those are true for those who wish to be married or pursuing marriage. Men, if you are leading and loving and living and serving like Jesus, I'm not sure it's real difficult or even undesirable to follow that kind of man. And if that's not happening, you maybe should spend some time in the mirror and ask yourself some questions. Why wouldn't she follow me? Why isn't she following me? How am I leading? How am I loving? How am I living like Jesus? Peter again though says, likewise husbands. You're like, likewise? Wait a second, husbands? I thought like we're in charge, right? Like what would what, what likewise... Because he's echoing back to the same submission idea. Wait, submission, men submit? So if it's likewise wives, likewise husbands, like what? What I said about submission earlier, what did I say about submission earlier? Well, submission is motivated by, I want to glorify God. I want to silence the ignorance of fools talking about God. I want to please God. I want to follow the example of the Son of God. I want to fulfill my calling from God. Okay, seems like all relationship with my bride is about God. You're getting closer. 
Being a leader as a husband responsible for your bride and pastor of your family is not easy. And I don't say that so you're like, yeah, give me a break, babe. It's hard. It, it, sure, there's that. What I mean is that it is a costly position. The church is called the bride. Jesus is the groom. Jesus loved the church by dying for the church. The groom loved his bride by dying for the bride. We are called to follow the humble example of Jesus in submission in the same way that women are called to humbly follow the submission of Jesus. But what does that mean for a husband? Well, there's a kind of submission that men must embrace as husbands. And what is that? One of self-denial. If you're going to love your wives as Christ loved the church, then you are going to do this. Willingly, regularly, intentionally, and joyfully sacrifice. Sacrifice your plans. Sacrifice your desires. Sacrifice your way. Often. And it will hurt. If you are not loving your wife that way, then it's not costing you anything and it's not loving your wife the way Christ loved the church. Peter calls husbands to also live with your wives in an understanding way since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. She's an heir with you. Right? She's an heir with you equal with you, a treasure in the eyes of God, no less than you. And he should have the same view of your bride. She should be a treasure in your eyes and you should be a student of her. You should be a student of her because she's a treasure and she is quite different. More than denying our own plans, more than denying our own desires, more than denying our own ways, we must embrace hers. And we understand that we're in the romantic stage prior to marriage. If you've ever dated, if you are dating, if you're married, and you remember back in the olden days of romance, and I can tell you from my perspective, when I decided that I thought, man, that is the girl for me, I was a man on mission. I studied every nuance. I knew everything she liked, every restaurant, every clothing item. I knew the size of her shoes, the size of her shirts, everything. I was a student. I want to know what made her laugh. I want to know what made her cry. I want to know everything about her. It's amazing how men fail to continue to do that in their marriages. I'll tell you right now, Kaylin, I remember the first time I saw her teach, blew me away because I didn't think there was a teacher in there. Never knew that. She used to teach absent education in schools, and I was a teacher, right? I'm the teacher. 
So I'm like, yeah, I'll go watch this because I want to be supportive. And I thought, you know, gosh, I hope she doesn't like stumble her way through this. I'd never seen her teach. <laughs> never seen her teach. And she gets up, and it's this big group of parents and people, and she's just like, oh. and I'm like, oh. I was so blown away, so impressed. I just saw a new piece of my bride that I'd never seen before. It's like, I need to know that. Like, wow student of your bride. It's not enough just to deny your own ways and deny the things that are your desires and your plans. You need to embrace hers. The text actually literally means live according to knowledge. What are, not just her shoe sizes, not the flowers she likes, not the restaurants and the, the food that her favorite. Do you know her dreams? Do you know her desires, her strengths, her weaknesses? her quirks, her gifts, her talents, her hopes. You know, you're called one flesh when you're brought together, and that's so you don't compete, but that you complement one another. And to ignore your bride and the beauty that is in there, it's to your detriment to do that. But more than that, he says something else that, again, is like, ugh, if I like that, Peter says, we're to show honor, men, to the woman as the weaker vessel. And women are like, hmm. Guy's like, that's right. I am weak. You are weak. I am strong. Right? Showing honor. It has to be more than just respect. We not only seek to understand the differences and the uniqueness of our bride's and women in general, I would argue, we're to celebrate them. And it says, celebrate them as the weaker vessel. Hey, you're weaker! That seems kind of weird. If submission is the S word, then I think weaker may be the W word, right? But it's in the text. What, what, do, you, what do you mean I'm weaker? Right? Because that could be used so negatively. Well, you are weaker, so I'm sure that's why you struggle with that, right? <laughs> like, we got to be careful. But it's there, so like Peter can't mean that way. I would argue, honestly, and if you know my wife, you'll probably agree with this, she is stronger than me in many ways. Many ways. I barely survived the women's retreat, right? I'm like, I don't even know how donuts is what got me through because she's just strong in so many different ways. Some argue that weakness here means physical. It's like, well, you know, men are generally stronger than women. Some argue that it's emotional. Some argue it's spiritual. Others just saying it's positional. We're talking about the fact that, hey, they, they're in a subordinate role, and I can see how that might make sense. We do know for sure that as co-equal co-heirs to the grace of life, it can't mean weaker as in some lower intrinsic value. But I would argue that it is both littler in some sense and more precious at the same time. And so I've, I've struggled with this. There's been all kinds of analogies put forward that are most of them are pretty bad. But I would argue that Maybe it's similar to how Paul talks about the parts of the body in the church in 1 Corinthians 12. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, it was a pretty crazy church, uber spiritual, 
but its members were um, kind of competing with one another for who's better, who's more spiritual. And so if you read through particularly chapters kind of 11 through 14, they're, they're almost comparing their, their spiritual worth with one another, trying to make themselves greater and bigger and better. And those who are more visible and out there are better than those who are invisible. And it, it's kind of a mess. And so to address it, Paul says, using the analogy of the body, saying all the members are important. And then he says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, same word that Peter's using, are indispensable. And on those parts that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. This has actually come to fruition or reality for me in between services, this idea. So I'm, I'm having surgery on my neck soon and I've realized how important the spine is. But you don't see my spine, do you? I feel my spine. I would argue that my bride is the backbone of my life. And without it, I'm just a pile of goo that can't do much, Right? And so I would argue that when we talk about weaker vessel, even though naturally like, oh, that sounds weaker, that sounds less, I would humbly suggest that Peter is actually using weaker here to elevate the value of the wife and not to diminish women or wives at all. But more precious. More than anything, I think he's using it actually to address men because that's actually the context. He's speaking to dudes, husbands, calling us to something greater. And he says, show honor. Not just think honor. Just like, I'm imagining honorable things towards you. I really appreciate you, but I never actually tell you. I think you're beautiful, but I never actually say it. Huh? Husbands, you should be your wife's greatest, loudest, and most devoted advocate as a woman, as a wife, as a daughter of the king. Period. Your leadership should make her more beautiful. Your leadership should make her more fruitful. Your leadership should make her more joyful. And if that's not happening, if your leadership is not making her more beautiful in every way, more fruitful in every way, and more joyful in every way, I would argue it's not something necessarily wrong with her. It may be something wrong with your leadership. If you're not showing her that kind of honor, Peter has some very strong words to say to us. He says we are to show honor as heirs of grace of life with us so that our prayers may not be hindered. That's a powerful few words. And what that says is that insofar as we are showing our wives honored, insofar as we are loving our wives as Christ loved the church and leading her well and living for her and serving her as Christ lived for us and served us, insofar as we do that, our relationship with God is good and unhindered. But insofar as that we are not showing honor, our relationship with God is somehow hindered. He does not hear our prayers he does not commune with us. 
And as we have frustrating marriages, and we're like, ah, I can't believe my wife's not doing this. And the only, only thing he wants to talk about, your sin. He doesn't want to talk about your bride. He wants to talk about you. He wants to make sure that you understand what it means to love a wife as Christ loved the church. The way of marriage that God calls us to as we close here is still quite radical in today's culture. Maybe for different reasons, but incredibly radical. But I believe the Bible is pretty clear that this kind of submission is not cultural. It's not part of the fall. It is actually part of God's design for the Christian life. And the gospel restores that design so that in Christ, you can experience the fullness of what marriage is supposed to be. That these commands aren't burdensome. That these commands become something that, as Jesus says, I tell you these things so that your joy will be made full. Like, it's interesting that we go, I don't know God. I know you're the creator. I know that you made marriage and you made husbands and wives and you made all these things, but I'm not sure it functions the way that you made it. What? I think the creator knows how he designed things. And even when it's counterintuitive or countercultural, we need to press into it. He says, this is the path to glory and joy, the path to fullness in life. Can you imagine a church full of marriages and men and women who committed to that? Can you imagine what kind of impact might come from married women devoting themselves to being Christ-like wives? Can you imagine how our community might change if married men devoted themselves to being Christ-like husbands? If younger men and younger women saw those examples, if older men and older women compelled others to those examples? What if for the sake of Christ, wives submitted to their husband's leadership and husbands submitted to their wives' needs? What would that do to our community? Ladies, as difficult as this is, look to Jesus. He has already submitted and humbled himself infinitely more than you ever will or could. And men, as you consider like, I got to deny myself. I got I to live this costly life of sacrificing and giving up my ways and desires. Yes. And I would argue that Jesus has already denied himself infinitely more than you ever could for you. God's design for marriage, quite simply, is not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your jobs are not about you. Your families are not about you. Your entire life is not about you. It's about God. Insofar like marriage, Paul gets so specific, he says, yeah, Marriage is pretty mysterious. It's actually a picture of how Jesus loves the church. And so what I would argue and compel and call everyone single, married, widowed, whoever, to uphold the glorious picture of marriage and of all of life and to say, you know what? It's not about me. It's about what it preaches about God. And it's going to preach either truth or lies, and I compel you in Christ, preach the truth. Live according to his ways. It is the path of joy, it is the path of life. Let's pray.